which is funny to anyone who's ever played that. But to all of you who haven't, you're just kind of looking at me cringing and shaking your head and wondering what's wrong with me. The answer is a lot, but that's okay. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this episode is going to be a bit different than our typical episode. Today we're joined by Kara Earhart, who is on Instagram as at Letters to Lyra. Now, since this is our first time having a guest on the show, we were a little unprepared and we ended up having to change our recording strategy at the last minute. It didn't record that great, but it did still record. So while our sound quality might not be what we're used to, I think the content is even better than usual. So enjoy the show. We're joined by Kara and what's your last name? Earhart. Like Amelia. <laughs> Do you get that a lot? No, actually, you'd be surprised at how many people don't understand that. Really? It's it's concerning. <laughs> uh, would you say it's a failing of our educational system, maybe? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> and maybe that's why we're doing what we're doing? Right, right. All right. So, Kara, what is it that... How did you find Charlotte Mason? Yeah, there you go. I stumbled across Charlotte Mason really through Instagram. Nice. <laughs> I had never really planned to homeschool past preschool. We always knew we would do preschool at home. But knowing that I had to set, I was planning to send my kids to kindergarten, I originally was trying to make sure they would be up to state standards when they entered kindergarten. And so I was reading blogs and looking for activities online and things and stumbled across homeschooling and Charlotte Mason in particular. And I just dove in. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, cool. And and how many kids and uh, and what are how old are they? Do you have? So we are <laughs> still technically in the early years. My oldest is almost six. So we'll be starting year one in the fall. And then so I yes, I have a daughter who is six and a daughter who's two. And then my son is in the middle of four. Very nice. So, yep. Very cool. Well, and just for, uh, I guess, reciprocal sake, our, our oldest is, what, seven? Mm -hmm. He's about to be turning eight here in a couple months, which is crazy. <laughs> and then our next is six currently. And then we have a four-year-old and twin two-and-a-half-year-olds. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's exciting. Every day is, every day is a, new, a new thing. <laughs> Sounds like it would be fun yeah yeah it's uh it's definitely it's definitely something <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and a little bit of background about us i mean i, I know that's i know it's on it's been recorded a couple times but crystal I, so i grew up homeschooled i was homeschooled from second grade all the way through graduation i know crystal was in and out and in every type of schooling whether it be christian public military uh, the the was it the DOD the schools, schools or homeschooled? Uh, she's she ran the gamut, and so homeschooling to me was always a thing that was it, it always made sense. It was always something like, oh yeah, well sure you'd homeschool, and no, there aren't any social problems with it. It it is what it is. It's not a big deal. And so Crystal, early on, she went to a couple conferences. I did the the great homeschool convention in Fort Worth. That's right. That's with what it was. A friend of mine who has a kid. Her her oldest is a year older. Well, about six months older than Ian, our oldest. And so when the kids, they were like, I think four. And we were like, okay, we're going to be homeschooling. Let's go to this conference. And so we went and I was introduced to both Classical and Charlotte Mason. And then over that next year, I just kind of was thinking and growing. And then the second great homeschool convention I went to, I listened to a Brandy Vinsel talk about Charlotte Mason. And that was pretty much it. I said, okay. 
I came home and told John, this is what we're doing. <laughs> and I said, oh, all right. <laughs> so, so then we've kept researching and digging and I was reading these and John wanted to start a podcast. And one of the podcasts we listen to is a Wheel of Time podcast that they basically go through the book. It's called Watt Spoilers. They go through the book and talk about everything in detail, chapter by chapter. And so we said, well, if you want to do a podcast, why don't we do this? Do this, and we'll read through this book, which will give us six volumes worth of things to talk about. <laughs> Material. <laughs> so, so here we are. And yeah. Technically, I have a year two and a year one, but a lot of those lines are blurred because of lots of kids. Yeah. So that's very true. All right. So the way we do this, and if you, oh, where can people find you on Instagram? Oh, that's a good thing. Oh yes. So my handle on Instagram is at letters to Lyra. Very cool. So if you haven't, you you listeners, if you haven't looked up, uh, if you haven't looked up her on Instagram, go do that. At letters to Lyra. There you go. All right. So. If you've listened to us, which you said you have, so we're going to work with that, then we just kind of go through the the book chapter by chapter. Uh, I'll, I, I guess we can open it up to you. Is is there anything in in the first I don't know the first page or so that that hop that pops off the page to you here as we start talking about walks in bad weather? I don't know. Or, but I'm really excited about this topic because this is just something I really love. <laughs> so. I think I just really appreciate, um, because I am in the early years, we spend a lot of time outdoors, um, mm -hmm. of course, and I really think I appreciate in the under pleasures connected with frost and snow when she says, but even on the frequent days when it is dirty underfoot and dull overhead, they should be kept interested and alert so that the heart may do its work cheerfully and a grateful glow be kept up throughout the body in spite of clouds and cold weather. And perhaps that spoke to me because, well, it's February in Iowa and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> has been our dreary, dreary life for almost three months now. Oh, I remember that. I grew up, I spent a lot of time growing up in Michigan and uh, it, it, yeah, dreary, dreary is a good descriptor. Yes. When the sun doesn't come out for weeks at a time. Uh-huh. And I just really appreciate that. And it's so encouraging, I think, to help me be creative to get out with our kids and think about what we can do in the winter, which is a lot really. So. Well, I'm backing up just slightly. She says it's best to still have two to three hours, maybe an hour and a half in the morning and about as long in the afternoon outside. And, and that's, that's not something I do. I don't like getting everybody bundled up and then getting out and being out for, you know, 10 minutes before they want to go in. But again, that's something that is important. And I've noticed when I do make that effort, everyone is in such great moods and so much better. <laughs> yes. So. They are. It's crazy. Well, and so uh, something to look forward to. Uh, so I took our two oldest on a, a mini vacation. We met out, we met up with some friends of ours who have a uh, a condo in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And so we were out there for a couple days and there were two or three feet of snow on the ground. There were giant snow drifts and we brought sleds and stuff for the kids to play on. And the two older kids were outside almost the entire time with their two cousins who were about their, their same age. And they put on their own clothes and their own winter gear. They put on their own jackets and their own hats and gloves and they went outside all on their own. And when they came in, they took all of their stuff off all on their own. It was amazing. <laughs> it wasn't like trying to to get toddlers ready to go out. It was it was a wonderful, a wonderful experience. So I guess things to look forward to is that children can become a little more independent or self-reliant at some point, <laughs> at least with putting on their own snow stuff. That is true. My five-year-old is very good at that, and she makes it much easier for me. Yes. <laughs> well, good. Yes. So that is definitely helpful. And, you know, I also think that it has helped with practice. Now I only have three. 
<laughs> oh, that's a lot. <laughs> that's, but that's a lot. I do, I do it, think it that when I force myself to practice and do this on a regular basis, it has kind of gotten easier over time. And because we've been sort of doing Charlotte Mason, well, not sort of, we have really been doing Charlotte Mason the entire time my two-year-old has been alive. It's pretty much second nature to her, I think, at this point. Just to just to be out. This is just what we do, even when the snow's up to her knees. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. Well, let's keep going here. Uh, she says, all that has been said about sightseeing and picture painting, the little French talk and observations to be noted in the family diary, belongs just as much to winter weather as to summer. And there's no end to the things to be seen and noted, which is something that you were saying earlier, that just because just because it's not pretty spring or green summer or colorful fall, there's still stuff to see. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. I even like here that she, she says, uh, indeed in one way it's possible to see more in the winter because the things to be seen do not crowd each other out. So there's, there's fewer things, but that means you can pay more attention to each one. Yeah. And, and you don't get distracted as much by all of them. Yes. And side tangent. So you know, we talk a lot about nature journaling and having your own nature journal, but she calls this one here a family diary. And oh, I missed that. And that thought of, you know, it's it's for the entire family as opposed to everyone having their own, because that's what I've been trying to do, where each person has their own. Yes. But but have it be as a family diary where everyone can write in it and everyone can make their own observations in it, but it's all in one. Especially since mom's pretty much writing it all at this point. Oh, that's true. Right. So that's, and I didn't catch that when I was reading through it, but I, it hit me just now. I was like, oh, that, that might make things easier for me. Yeah. Well, and she kind of talks about that even a little bit here in the next section. And I'm sure, Crystal, you're going to want to. Yep, we're going to pop back to that. Uh, right. I, I'm curious about that quote because I didn't look it up because I know you do. Um, but she kind of talks about that in this next little section with uh, Robert Houdin, which I'm sure, again, you know who that is, <laughs> reminded me of Houdini, but I'm guessing there's no relation. There's no relation, but there is a connection. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> Seeds of anticipation there. <laughs> um, but but they say that he and, I guess, he and his father, or he and his son, depending on which she says, I, I'm, I'm not finding these things. Okay. But anyway, so they would, they would pass... A toy shop. Right, so they would pass a toy shop and they would look in the window for just a moment. And then after passing, they would furiously write down in their notebooks everything that they had seen. But that means that he and his son both had notebooks that they both carried with them at all times so that mm. they could do this randomly. That makes sense. Right? So so that speaks to a deeper thing here in that they were prepared at a moment's notice to do these things as opposed to just having to having to make it a point to okay so today we're going to walk past that store and when we do we're going to have our notebooks and then we're going to do our lesson it seems like it was more of a spontaneous thing anyway that's <laughs> moving moving forward a little bit further but but you're 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 bringing up her her uh, family diary made me think of the next part where they they do that together that makes sense so these are a quote from uh so Crystal's opening up her uh, her annotated version of home education. Because I didn't actually write down. William Cowper. These are books, or these are a poem, parts of a poem by William Cowper called The Task. And so the first four quotes are taken from The Winter Morning Walk. But what I found was fascinating was that she quoted them out of order. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, the cattle mourn in corners where the fence screens them is the third quote from this book, this section. The sun is first, and then every herb and spiry blade is second. And then the sparrows is still fourth. The sparrows peeping and quit their sheltered eaves. That's still fourth. But she definitely switched up the order of these quotes. Nice. I, I just, you know, I feel like if I quote something, I have to quote it appropriately and in the right order and how it is. And she's just like, no, nope, I like this line. I like this <laughs> line and this line. Well, you'll notice she doesn't have quotations around the whole thing. She has quotations around the lines individually. Yeah. So she's legitimately quoting this line and then she's quoting a different line. <laughs> yeah. 
And the red breast is from the winter walk at noon. So the first four are morning and the second, the last one is noon. Interesting. So I don't understand how her mind works sometimes. She's a she's an interesting one. And Robert Houdin is actually that's his last name. He hyphenated his last name with his wife's name. Her last name was Houdin. So he's Jean Eugene Robert Houdin. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he was a French watchmaker and he ordered some books about watchmaking, a two volume set, and they sent him a set about magic and illusion. <laughs> and he absolutely loved it. Nice. Um, and so he's known as the the father of the modern style of magic and conjuring. Interesting. And he's the one who started the legacy of performing in tales. And Houdini took added the I onto that name and took that as his, his stage name. Oh, so Houdini's so, not actually his name. It's his stage it's name, a I stage. guess. Interesting. So Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. All these things from Charlotte Mason. Who knows? See? <laughs> oh man, that's funny. So how do you clothe your children as we talk about well, the wet <laughs> days and rain and what to wear? Yes. Well, I do admit that I do not use as much wool as I probably ought. I was pricing wool <laughs> last night and it is ridiculous. It, it sli- is sli- slightly expensive. It was, I was looking at one website and it was like $60 for leggings. Yeah. I'm like, I, I can't, I, I would splurge on myself because I don't change sizes. Yeah. <laughs> but not on children who are going to grow out of it in a season. Yes. And that is what we do in our family. My kids all do get wool socks. And then I do have the wool leggings that I put under my pants and wool socks because, well, yes. They because don't you're mind as much as I do. And I am not going to keep growing in, you know, six months. I should hope they still fit. So. That is, I do splurge on wool socks for my kids and they get handed down. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah, but otherwise we really do the typical rain jackets, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that she would be a big fan of. And right now we are in that wonderful season where it is half frozen, half muddy. And so we just use snow pants because it's too cold to be wet. And we just Uh use snow pants the whole time. They're easy to wash and they keep them warm and dry. So that makes sense. We have, I have um, snow jackets and bibs for all of them. And I don't, I don't even have the wool socks, but we also, have not been getting out as much so that that would be something to to think about even even to finish out this season yeah well because um, I, I feel like the at least recently it's been less wet and more just cold mm-hmm. and they don't really want to put on their snow pants if there's no snow because they're snow pants so i think that might be something to to get over <laughs> call them cold weather pants Swishy, swishy, swishy. Swishy pants. <laughs> they do have those like suits now, you know, that you can put over your whole body, but those are also expensive. Yeah. We had we had a set of those for for Isaac and Lily when they were tiny. Oh yeah. They were their uh there was puffball suits. Their puff either yeah, their puffball suits. And they were, oh man, it was so much material and they just they, they couldn't move. It was great. It was so much fun. Yes. But those were really nice because they were breathable, but they were also very warm. They were more, I think they were more fleece than anything. Mm-hmm. A yeah. lot of air to keep them, them warm. Yeah. So yeah, Charlotte Mason is a fan of wool, like you both said. So another random tangent, and we're on the next page now. Um, I don't know whether it's more of a pretty fancy of Richter's, that a spring shower is sort of an electric bath and a very potent means of health. Certainly rain clears the atmosphere. I wanted to know what she was talking about as far as an electric bath. And there's two electric baths that happened in that time. I'm there's, nervous. I know, right? <laughs> there's one that is literally an electric bath. 
uh, it's especially in um, Japan. It's called a, a denkiburo. And a low-level level electric current runs between electrode plates in the water. Oh, that sounds healthy. And the bather experiences the electric current as pins and needles tingling. or And some people find it relaxing and some people find it frightening. So there's that option. Well, that sounds like a blast. As a, le- a legitimate electric bath to uh, clear your system out. Or... Sure. The... Early tanning beds were also called electric baths. Using ultraviolet light, you would, you know, get in there and have lights on you. And it would make you sweat and cleanse your body, I guess. So as then, long as you didn't stay in for longer than 30 minutes. So then is she saying that a spring shower is sort of an electric bath as in it is energizing and it makes you tingle and it's shocking to the system? Yes. As in you should stay out in the rain. Keep your child active and healthy in the rain. Because it's shocking to the system and that's good for you. As long as you don't keep them wet Hmm. afterwards. Okay. Uh, Note for people who want to try that experiment at home, leave the amperage and the voltage turned real far down on your electric bath. Don't do it at home. (laughs) Do it in the official ones. Yeah, it's probably a good choice. But if you're crazy enough to do it at home, just just tune down... (laughs) Tune it all down real far. Ugh. Anyway, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my engineer over here and, and I'm gonna be quiet now. Oh man! All right. Well, she closes this section out with some precautions. She says, um, at the same time. So she's talking about how you should be out in the rain and and your kids should be doing stuff. She says, at the same time, though, children should never be allowed to sit or stand about in damp clothes. And here is the use of waterproof rain wraps to keep them dry on short journeys to church or school or neighbor's house where they cannot very well change their garments. And she also at some point talks about having healthy children go outside in the cold and the rain isn't bad. They don't catch cold. But having children who are already sick, who already have a cold, that having them go outside in the cold and the rain probably isn't the best idea. Sometimes Charlotte Mason is a little iffy on her science and health info. I, I, I think I approve of both of those messages, though. Yep. Yes. Rain, definitely. Yeah. So that closes out chapter uh, X and two eyes. What is that? Twelve. Roman numerals again. I thought we were done do with you, these. Kara, do you have anything else about about outside or, or um, what was the name of the chapter? Walks in bad weather that you would like to add? Um, I think just that it is worth doing. And I'm just glad that she discusses it. That we've had so many fun memories from doing walks in bad weather when it's so easy to feel like you just don't want to do it. But if you have a good attitude and get your kids out there. We have lots of funny rain stories. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, yes. So, I don't know. I guess that's that's really all. And and like she says, dress appropriately. I, that has made a world of difference, I think, for my kids. Yeah. I've taken the time to really think about that and making sure that those needs are met. And, and it really does make a difference. And also for myself, because then I actually yes. feel like I want to go outside because I'm not going to be too cold. I used to be very opposed to being out in the cold and I really enjoy it now um, with my kids. And I think that's because I dress appropriately for that. Did that happen as you had kids and as you were researching this or did that happen before you had kids and you started getting out? No, that happened after I had kids. Actually, before I had kids, I was living in California for a time. And so it was real easy to get outside. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. And so then when I moved back to the Midwest, um, it wasn't until after I had kids and really started to look into Charlotte Mason and kind of realized I wanted to be outside. But then we would need to embrace the fact mm-hmm. that I live in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a great thing. And there is a lot to do. And we go on antler shed hunts and hunt for animal tracks in the snow and nice. all things I never would have thought to do. And I can do it now because I'm comfortable. <laughs> so yeah, mm-hmm. not until Charlotte Mason did I really think about some of that. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I know, I, like I said, I grew up in Michigan and so 
I spent any number of winters. Well, and I lived in Wisconsin too for a couple of years. So any number of winters in the uh, bitter cold and deep snow, and yeah, being properly dressed is a is a game changer because because yes. you can be outside. Cool. Yeah, I think that's all. <laughs> all right. Well, moving on to chapter thirteen then, Red Indian Life. And she starts out talking about scouting. And Baden-Powell wrote the wrote a book called Aid to Scouting. And the PNEU schools were some of the very first ones to use her book, or I'm sorry, his book in their schools to do scouting activities and events and things. Scouting as in not Boy Scouts. This is the Boy starting Scouts. of Boy Scouts. Oh, okay. Okay. So she she trained her teachers to to teach these kids these these tools, these ambushing tools, these looking at what's going on and and being aware of everything and the the story is that he's riding home from from work one day and suddenly he hears his son and says, "Father, you're shot. I am in ambush and you're shot." <laughs> <laughs> and up in the tree with him is his Miss Charlotte Mason, educated governess. Oh my gosh! Who is teaching his son these these things from his book? Nice that she learned, and he's like, "Oh, well, these kids need this." Wait, wait, wait! So it it was the son. It was Baden Powell's son. It was Baden Powell's son who snuck up on him and shot him. Yeah, and his son was being taught by the governess. Yes, from his, his book. book. Yes. Okay. Wow. So so he's like, okay, this really works. So he wrote a, an updated one more for boys because this was more for like the older kids and uh, like teenagers and, and soldiers. Advanced sneaking. Yes. So he wrote a younger book for scouting. Huh. And it, it eventually became, you know, the Boy Scouts of America. And that was the, the formation of it. And it trained... Many, and they, they were saying, you know, it trained many, many people, many, many boys who then were a part of the Great War, part of um, ah. World War One, and, and were lost to the country. And so in addition to needing to train everyone again about this, that it, it was it was interesting to see how how keeping these knowledge this knowledge available needs to pass on through generations. Right. And like she said, you know, we if we have to be careful and otherwise we will lose this type of training and intelligence. So interesting. Interesting. Yeah, the only thing I thought on this, so I play I play a weekly game of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and the only thing I thought of is that you can learn to be stealthy, and learn to be a uh, a ranger. <laughs> Just don't fail your stealth rolls. <laughs> yeah, no. Which is funny to anyone who's ever played that, but to all of you who haven't, you're just kind of looking at me, cringing and shaking your head and wondering what's wrong with me. The answer is a lot, but. That's okay. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> the, the next interesting thing was, um, she says, and as strongly as we sympathize with the effort made to put down bird nesting, we'll lose all of these things. And she adapts bird nesting into bird stalking. And so I did a little bit of looking up bird nesting. And it was... Um, people and boys going out to collect eggs and it led to drastic decreases in population. And there's a, the, the Thames Conservancy Acts specifically of 1895 specifically says that they will prevent bird catching, bird nesting and bird trapping and searching for the nests along the Thames. And it was called oology. And it was popular in Britain and the United States, partially because binoculars weren't readily available. So you had to get right up and close to see them. Mm-hmm. And the collection of eggs and wild birds by amateurs was considered a respectable scientific pursuit 
in the 18th or 19th century, but towards the mid 20th century, it was increasingly regarded as a hobby and tried to get rid of because it's invasive. Right. Which led me to a couple people who wrote some of the bird books that'll be coming up and they they're hunter naturalists or parson naturalists and that that hunter naturalist juxtaposition juxtaposition that one juxtaposition <laughs> doesn't seem to be around nowadays where you can do the hunting and the preserving in the same at the person. same time yeah so that's interesting i do know so i uh, I don't think I've brought him up in a long time, but I listened to Joe Rogan, and he is a, an avid hunter, and he is a a huge proponent of being outside and killing your own meat. And again, back to Michigan, I grew up around a lot of people who were also proponents of that. Here in Idaho, that's a huge population. And a lot of times what you find are the people that are the biggest hunters are also the biggest conservationists. Mm. They want to see the deer population thrive because they want to eat venison. It's kind of like a farmer who who likes eating beef. You're not just going to kill all your cows because you like beef and now you're left with no cows. You're going to make sure you have more. So and take care of them appropriately. Yeah, so the the hunters and the the wildlife people or I guess the wildlife eating people tend to also be conservationists. Now that's not always true. <laughs> there are hunters who are not conservationists, but but from the people I've known and and interacted with, that seems to be the way that a lot of those people are: is that they want to see the the outside creatures thrive and do well and continue growing and living. I agree with that, and and it is interesting too because I think about that as with like plants and stuff too. People who are like more foragers. I'm getting getting off track now too, but that's what we do. That <laughs> <laughs> you do, you want to keep those things thriving, or you can't do that anymore. Yeah, it is interesting. I was just thinking with that Thames law that you know we have that similar um, those like feather laws in the u.s where you're really not supposed to have well feathers of pretty much any <laughs> native species of bird um here and um you know that sort of went along with that which is so hard to imagine now because at least where i live that doesn't seem to be that the bird population doesn't seem to be hurting but i from what i understand but maybe i'm wrong on that um but i know that that's that's a thing a law yeah it, it's a thing <laughs> Well, and I wonder if the thriving of the bird population isn't a a uh, a consequence or a a result a result of those types of laws. Yeah, of those types of laws and the the fact that conservation or or conservancy, that's not a word, the act of conserving things has has come to the forefront in in at least American thinking over the last I don't know, some number of years. <laughs> And and it's a thing that we all think about now, and it's a thing that that uh, you can get yourself in serious trouble in wrong company if you talk about doing bad things to wrong animals. Yeah. There's a a book I was listening to called Braiding Sweetgrass, and it's about a a Native American scientist who is is exploring you know using the land appropriately and how humans and nature can help each other and one of the major examples that she gave was she had a a grad student who for her thesis said okay we have sweet grass growing and is it better for the sweet grass to be left unattended to be harvested in one method or be harvested in a second method, whether you cut it or pull up the entire grass. And they looked at this field over, I think, two or three years. And by the end of two or three years, you could tell even from a distance that the harvested sweetgrass, no matter which way it was, that field was doing so much better than the one that was just left alone. That using it in appropriate ways, taking no more than 50%, being respectful of the area, 
was better for the grasses than just letting it be and leaving it alone. Interesting. So that really is interesting. It 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 was a fascinating book, just exploring uh, ways of interacting with things that are not hands off. I mean, we're dealing with the wildfires now, and a lot of yeah. a lot of people are swinging with the wildfire debate. You know, it, it was you know stop every single fire that you have, and now we're having these out of control wildfires. So it's you know, do we let little ones burn? Do we let the do we do controlled fires? How how can we best help the land and manage it and live with it? So interesting. And what was the what was the name of that book again? Braiding Sweetgrass. Braiding Sweetgrass. Don't ask me who it's by. By some I don't author. Know. <laughs> so I know it's on my hold list at the library for an audiobook. Yes. So I could look it up if I wanted to. So bird stalking. <laughs> Back to what bird stalking actually is. Right. So I honestly, I have to admit, I read through this whole section. I don't have a thing highlighted. I uh, nothing jumped off the page at me. It, it's pretty straightforward. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I did find interesting, and I guess I really tried to like look this up, but I was just thinking about how she talks about how in the winter months you can become familiar familiar with the resident <laughs> birds, but. I mean, a lot of our winter birds are not here in the summer. <laughs> a lot of our summer birds are not here in the winter, which they are much easier to see in the winter often because our trees are bare. But right. I did think that, but they they do make different sounds. Like I, I know like our cardinals, for example, don't really make much noise in the winter, but we know they're call in the summer. But then we have things like a dark-eyed junco that are not here in the summer. And I've never really learned their fall <laughs> so i i don't know i did kind of think about that and i really probably should have looked up i know it's a little more mild where she was at well they're all she's also on an island i don't know if that makes a difference to birds and migrating yeah if they have to fly over a lot of water and can the swallows carry coconuts that's not relevant to this conversation totally relevant how would you be able to make your horse clomping sounds without coconuts if you're bird stalking you're being quiet and silent. And, oh, oh, what was it? <laughs> Sorry, that's a Monty Python reference there. So <laughs> this, this one of the guy's examples that she has, he says, I know at least four pairs of the reed warblers. And when I could induce the children to both stop talking for a few minutes, <laughs> for a few minutes, we were able to watch them boldly hopping up and down the reeds and singing in full view of us. I was like, yes, it's not just us. Who have to deal with getting multiple children quiet. <laughs> so I I related to that quote. That's funny. I missed that. It's towards the end. I so. actually underlined that. So <laughs> the yes. relatableness of it. <laughs> um, That's awesome. Yeah, we have we have a bird feeder out front, and so we have a couple of we've got finches and sparrows and actually some Oregon juncos that come. Mm. And we see them, but we don't really hear them because of the, you know, glass in between us. Yes. So I, I don't, and I, I have a hard time distinguishing bird sounds from different bird sounds. And I don't know if it's just my ear that I don't, I'm not that musically inclined. Or you haven't trained it. Or I haven't trained it, but. I will say, so one of the books you got a, you got for us for the trip, I don't remember which one it was, but it talked about that you can put seed in your hand and feed the birds by hand. And Ian got very excited about that. He tried to do that today. Did it work? No. Oh. No. <laughs> He's got to work harder. He sat on the picnic table for like two seconds with seed in his hand. <laughs> Sit down. Oh, screw it. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. That sounds like something I would do too. That's funny. That is funny. Um, I will say I have a hard time with bird sounds as well. But, okay, so this... I'll try to make this quick. I remember from one of my early childhood development classes, um, learning about um, language development and how children are the reason they can under are, are able to understand and pick up foreign languages more quickly than we are is, is because they haven't uh, assimilated to specific sounds mm -hmm. like we have. And so they can hear tonal sorts of languages and things like that in a way that we no longer can as adults because we didn't learn that. 
So I actually started to learn more bird sounds because when my daughter was about three to four, she was figuring them out on her own. And she it, I, she has shown an affinity for that sort of thing, like instruments and music and stuff like that. So she does have an affinity for it. But I just thought that same thing, that like maybe that they are able... I haven't trained my ear enough to do that where she has always loved birds. And I think she would observe them enough to recognize like, Oh, that is a cardinal, which is a pretty, it's a pretty distinct sound, but I started to recognize that she actually was recognizing some of these on her own. And nice. I think it was partly because of that, because her ear, her ear was, it has, hadn't quite been as turned off to it her entire life. Like mine had. And so I've been slowly learning them, but she picks them up. They pick, my kids pick them up much quicker than I do. I I hear them and then I forget them, it seems. Yeah, I I can see that happening with me too. Which which for, for me, I, I feel like how, how do I cultivate that in them when I can't do it myself? Yes. And it's, it's hard to know my own limitations and push them on further mm-hmm. when I'm not sure where I'm where I'm pushing them to or what they're going towards. <laughs> That's true. So um but you were talking about they they have it and they haven't lost that affinity. And that goes back to when we were talking about the habit of observation where it's not that it's on page sixty nine. I think that most grown men who are remarkable in this respect may with greater propriety be said to not have lost the faculty than to have acquired it. The rather, as I generally observe such men to retain a certain freshness and gentleness and capacity of being pleased, which are also an inheritance they have preserved from their childhood. The idea being that you can lose that ability Mm -hmm. as opposed to that as an adult you gain that ability. Exactly. Yeah. Because you don't work at that habit and work at that attention and right. cultivate it. You let that muscle atrophy. Exactly. Yep. So the other note was these books, Morris's British Birds and John's British Birds. She prefers John's. I um, prefer John's as well. Of course you do. My, my book on birds is best. They are both available in the public <laughs> domain on archive.org and gutenberg.org. Morris was an Irish clergyman, so he was one of the Parson Parson naturalists. Apparently, he got a cushy job and could do a lot of going out and wandering and nice looking at birds. And uh, the pictures, the pictures are really, really pretty. It's a it's a nice book. However, if you want to get a hard copy of it, like an original hard copy, they're now nine hundred dollars. Yeah. So, as compared to, you can get John's now. For $7. See? My book is far superior. It's the cheap one. He also was a pastor, but he also wrote a number of popular natural history books published by the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. And he had more of an informal, entertaining style aimed at general educated readership and encouraged amateurs more than professional oologists. Oologists? No, orthonologists. Ornithologist or ortho ornithologist. Ornithologist. Okay. That word. <laughs> I have it written yep. down. Ornithologist. So those two books are available online, and John's is probably still better. That's right, it is. So. My book is best. Now, do you guys have? I mean, obviously, those are British birds. Do you have <laughs> field guides that you use? I actually have. I went and bought bird seed at a local bird shop and sitting on the counter was, you know, an Idaho bird, little bird book. Yeah. And the guy was like, yeah, we really like this one because it's ordered by color. Mm-hmm. So on the on the margins, you have little color tabs. And so you go, OK, what color's the bird? And you look it up that way. And these are all in Idaho birds. So it has been it's been very helpful. It's not very robust, but it, it has been good. And I've picked up a couple of other, you know, Birds of North America, North American Wildlife, another bird book yeah. at sales and stuff that I'm like, ah, these are pretty pictures. 
We'll bring this one home. You can always use another bird book. So, which actually we have a, a Birds of Prey Center here and they did a, a library thing. And part of it was, you know, hey, take this home, research about these and we'll give you uh, passes to come and to the to the Birds of Prey place. And so Ian did a little mini research project on two types of Birds of Prey. And cool. we pulled out the books, and he looked at the books and found the information that he needed. And Nice. So, yeah, worked out well. That's awesome. All right. Well, I feel like we've talked about birds. <laughs> so let's move on here to Chapter 9. This which is, is 14. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm real good at Roman numerals. Chapter XIV, whatever the heck that is. Seriously, I hate Roman numerals. 14, chapter 14, which comes directly after eight. (laughs) The children require country air. And this, I feel she needs to put this back with her healthy brain activity chapter. Yeah, I feel like we already talked about this. And some of it she has talked about oxygen and carbonic acid gas, also known as carbon dioxide. And being in a place where the air can support the people that have that are in there and we don't have the same gas lamps furnaces fireplaces as they did in that time we don't we have much better heating and air at least in the uh in most parts of the u.s we do there's a there's a lot of research about getting outside air inside and what that does for people and children and and all of those things so Outside air is very important. And as an industry, as a, as a building and, and engineering industry, we've come to realize that. So whether, whether or not her science is right, again, her... The application her, works. Yeah, her application is absolutely on point. Was it the, the, uh, un, un, uh, the impoverished air would be... You don't want the impoverished air that right. you would be recirculating. Exactly. Yes. So open your windows a bit, which is what she talked about any number of chapters ago. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the same. <laughs> she says there's there, there's a, a give and take between town life and country life. For grown-up people, the town, the stimulus of the town helps to counterbalance the impurity of the town air as well as the country people forfeit their advantages through the habits of mental sluggish that they fall into. But for the children, and she goes back to the children again, they breathe and they grow and they require more than adults necessarily do. And they, they need that type of air that's out in the country. And also she talks about solar light. And I think the, the looking She's talking about being ruddier and the production of red corp, corp, corpuscles. 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 I'm wondering if that had a lot to do with vitamin D. I thought the same thing. I I didn't look it up. I, I wondered that also. Yeah. Again, this is another one where I think her her science is slightly questionable. Right. But her observation is absolutely on point. Mm. Being outside, getting sunlight is, again, hugely important. And vitamin D is a big part of that. And maybe red blood cell corpuscles is also, but... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the science of it. No. (laughs) (laughs) But we know it's good for vitamin D. We know it's good for vitamin D. and, And we who have had children go outside know that it's good for children to go outside. I heard a quote, you know, send them outside where there are no walls for them to bounce off of. (laughs) So. Yeah, that's very true. So when they're bouncing off the walls, just take the walls away. (laughs) Right. So. Yeah. So so then she gets to this last section here. Uh, She talks about the physical ideal for a child. And this, I feel like, is something that hits home today at least in the US with uh, popular thinking about uh, body positivity movements and 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 all of and all of that and uh, she's she's talking about how how it's good to have 
an ideal. And it's good to work towards that. She says it's worth looking at if only as suggesting the sort of physique we delight to see in a child. No doubt the child inherits the most that he is in this respect, as in all others. But this is what bringing up may, with some limitations, affect. The child is born with certain natural tendencies. And according to his bringing up, each such tendency may run into a blemish of person or character or into a cognate grace. Therefore, it's well, therefore, it is worthwhile to have even a physical ideal for one's child. Not, for instance, to be run away with by the notion that a fat child is necessarily a fine child. That fat child can easily be produced. But the bright eye, the open regard, the springing step, the tones clear as a bell, the agile, graceful movements that characterize the well-brought-up child are the result not of bodily well-being only, but of mind and soul according well, of a quick, trained intelligence, and of a moral nature habituated to the joy of self-control. And I, I like where she goes with this. She's not saying that there's a physical ideal that you must attain, but there's a physical ideal that you can strive for. And, it, and, and, and you can see it in certain things, in their eyes, in the way they regard things, in the way they walk, the way they talk, yeah, the way the, the, they can be graceful. And I, I think this is, again, you know, everything's a pendulum. I think this is where it was recommended that, you know, a sign of being well-fed is that the child is fat. Mm-hmm. And a lot of children go through stages where they just are fat. And mm-hmm. and whether it's when they're babies before they crawl and they just have rolls that are the size of, <laughs> you know, your forearm and you're going... And I remember this with Ian. I, he, I couldn't fit his legs into the bumbo because they were so <laughs> That's fat. true. But yeah. then but then when my daughter was born, he could still fit in the bumbo and he loved getting in it. Right. And I'm going, you 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 couldn't fit in that when you were younger. Because he had thinned now out you so much. Can again. And so there huh. there are ways and especially as as kids grow and go through growth spurts and puberty and there are times when there's just more fat on their bodies and it's good and right but that is not where you're what you're striving for it's this bright eye open regard springing step that you need to be looking for yeah well and it's it's something we talk about a lot i mean we've said it any number of times but charlotte mason talks about the ideal the ideal for raising children the ideal household and one of those things is the ideal household has a maid, a cook, a butler. I mean, the ideal household has all of these extra people to help mom so and dad. So the mother can focus on. Right. So mom can focus on momming, mothering, whatever. Um, <laughs> and everyone else can focus on on everything else. And, they, yeah. and, and so, you know, as, as we talk about the ideal, we're so far off of the ideal that the question is, all right, so what's one step we can take towards the ideal? What's one thing that we can do better than we did yesterday or last month or last year? And, you know, so she talks about getting our, getting out for, for three hours a day. Well, if you don't ever go outside, then three hours a day is a lot. So make it 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you get outside for a little bit every day, make it a little bit more. And if you find yourself having most of the wrong clothing and like we were talking about earlier, you can't get outside for the whole three hours because you just get cold. Well, maybe, maybe get save a little bit and, and invest in, yeah. And invest in a pair of socks. Get the socks. And then next year, invest in a pair of gloves and, and slowly build up that repertoire so that you're slowly taking one step towards that ideal. Mm-hmm. Cause we're never going to reach that ideal. But if we just throw up our hands and say, well, I can't, it's, I'm, I'm so far beyond ideal that there's no saving me, then, then what are we doing? So it's always that one step closer to the ideal that I think is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of habit training. <laughs> it's yes. exactly habit training. <laughs> I, it's so frustrating that everything goes back to that. Right. <laughs> oh. It's almost like Charlotte Mason knew what she was talking about. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
Maybe. Well, Kara, any last thoughts about anything we've talked about? I don't think so. Get outside. (laughs) (laughs) Even in bad weather. Especially in bad weather. Crystal, Crystal, you need to do that. (laughs) Well, and I want to point back to the very first line here. She says, the question of out-of-door exercise in winter and in wet weather is really more important for who that could would not be abroad in the summertime. Yeah. If it's nice outside, of course you're going to be outside. That's not when it's important to make the make the choice to be outside. Yeah. So, uh, she she also noticed notes that it's 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 hard to go outside when it's cold and wet and gross. And I do appreciate then then that she like with the um, country air. Um, talking about that, and again, whether the science is correct or not, you're right. Her observations are correct that getting outside does us good. And we have updated science to support that. And hopefully that's encouraging to us as parents, that we are not just doing it because Charlotte Mason says so. There, She has reasons, and we can see that those are still supported and sound reasons. And that's that's good. And hopefully that encourages us as parents. <laughs> it, it, it does. It's, it's easy to get into the trap of, I do this because Charlotte Mason said to. Right. And, and it's like, no, I, I do this because this is something that she observed and she wrote down and it is a valid thing to do. Yes. And it makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an adventure <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a lot of fun. It has. So thank you so much. I mean, this has been exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and, and you are our very first, our our inaugural, our uh, what trailblazer guest <laughs> yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> That's probably how people describe me. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, for everyone who's listening, if you haven't checked out Kara on Instagram, she's at letters from Lyra. Two. Letters to Lyra. I'm real good at this. Is Lyra your daughter's name? Lyra is my oldest daughter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it just hit John. <laughs> well, I was, no, I thought about it earlier. I was going to ask, all right, so where does the name come from? And, and then I completely forgot, but yeah, very cool. Yep. So it is, it is for my daughter. I actually originally had that idea in my head. My, she was a preemie and I was kind of chronicling her stay mm. in the NICU for our family. And so that she could hear it. And I, had written this like private blog for her. And then when we started this whole journey, I was like wanting a creative outlet just for myself and mm-hmm. to find some community. And so I went with that, although I maybe need to change, change my name because, you know, I have other kids. So. <laughs> it's, it's more personal than letters to my kids. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yep. We do lots of outdoor adventures and handcrafts and, you know, that's, that's their life right now. Yep. Right. And it's a good one. <laughs> it is. It is. So thank oh. you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Are you guys both Brandon Sanderson fans or Wheel of Time fans? So I, I, I am the original uh, Wheel of Time fan. I got Crystal into it uh, after we got married into the Wheel of Time, and then I got into Brandon Sanderson through the last three books in the Wheel of Time, and have devoured a lot of the things he's read, written. I have read the things he's written. That was the same. My husband had read through um, the Wheel of Time several times, like in college. Oh, okay. High school and college waiting for the next book and the next (laughs) book. Yes. And so then when we got, we're engaged, he told me to read it. And so. Oh, no. I did. (laughs) And um, yeah. And I really enjoyed it too. But I have, I have not read or Brian Sanderson, but he is the big, he loves fantasy and okay. 
he really lo- he really enjoys Brandon Sanderson. So I, I've enjoyed him a lot. I, I, I've I've I don't know. I feel like he's a he's a more descriptive writer than Robert Jordan was, or or maybe more action oriented. I guess. Uh, yeah. Sanderson is better at painting word pictures that that move. Mm. Whereas Jordan was really good at describing a, a thing. He loved describing clothing um, and cities and and the way people looked. But he didn't seem to get movement as well, movement and action. And that's something that Sanderson definitely uh, excels at and something I enjoy about his writing is it's more like uh, watching a movie as opposed to, uh, I don't know, looking at paintings. Hmm. That's like a, that's a good description. I'm in the middle of the book two and in a very intense action scene right now. And so I'm like, I was listening to it as I was putting the kids to bed. It's like, okay, I really want to just stay here and listen, but I have to go. I have, <laughs> I have work to do, but, but, but. It's like climaxing and so exciting. The hard part <laughs> about being a, a, a book fan, right? Yes. Uh, real life just gets in the way. Yes. So it much. does. It's annoying. Yes. 